Hey, I'm Jim Carlton, pastor at Calvary Berthoud. The CD you're listening to was recorded to better inform you of the mission statement of Calvary Berthoud. That is to love God and love others. These two messages cover the topics of love God why and love God how. You see, it was Christ's command in Mark 12, 28 through 34, that we first love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Again, this is not a suggestion, it's a command. We are to put our focus on God first and on others second. Of course, this means that we should come in a distant third. But we don't always do that very well, do we? We're so often self-focused rather than God-focused and others-focused. Well, hopefully these two teachings will encourage you to love God and love others better. Calvary Berthoud meets together every Saturday evening at 7 p.m. for worship, prayer, fellowship, and verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible. You can also listen to 89.7 Grace FM, a local radio station with Calvary Chapel teaching and worship seven days a week, 24 hours a day. We pray that you will be encouraged to join us in this mission of loving God and loving others here at Calvary Berthoud. God bless you and enjoy the teachings. Suppose you are an extra in an upcoming movie. You will probably scrutinize that one scene where hundreds of people are milling around just waiting for that two-fifths of a second when you can see the back of your head. Just waiting for that. And then maybe your mom and your closest friend get all excited about that two-fifths of a second with you. Maybe. But no one else will even realize it's you. Even if you tell them, they won't care. Let's even take it a step further. What if you rent out the theater on opening night and invite all your friends and family to come see the new movie about you? People will say, You're an idiot. How could you think this movie is about you? Well, many Christians are even more delusional than the person I've been describing. So many of us think and live like the movie of life is all about us. So consider this movie of life. God creates the world. We weren't alive then. God wasn't talking to us when He proclaimed it is good about all He just made. Then the people rebel against God who, if you haven't realized it just yet, the main character in this movie is God. And God floods the earth to rid it of the mess the people have made of it. Then several generations later, God singles out a 90-year-old man called Abraham and makes him the father of a nation. We didn't have anything to do with that. Later, along come Joseph and Moses and many other ordinary and inadequate people that the movie is also not about. God is the one who picks them and directs them and works miracles through them. In the next scene, God sends judges and prophets to His nation because the people can't seem to give Him the one thing that He asks of them, which is obedience. And then the climax. The Son of God is born among the people whom God still somehow loves. While in this world, the Son teaches His followers what true love looks like. Then the Son of God dies and is resurrected and goes back up to be with God. And even though the movie isn't quite finished yet, we know what the last scene holds. 
It's the scene in the throne room of God. Here, every being worships God who sits on the throne, for He alone is worthy to be praised. So from start to finish, this movie is obviously about God. He's the main character. How is it possible that we live as though it's about us? Our scenes in the movie, our brief lives, fall somewhere between the time Jesus ascends into heaven, the book of Acts, and when we will all worship God on His throne in heaven, the book of Revelation. We have only our two-fifths of a second scene to live. Doesn't it only make sense to have our two-fifths of a second focused on God? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That is what each of our two-fifths of a second should be about. So what does that mean for us? Well, frankly, we need to get over ourselves. <laughs> that might sound harsh, but that's seriously what it means. So then, it's about God. It's about focus. What is your, what is my focus? If we were to look through a pair of binoculars, we have to make adjustments to those binoculars to bring what we are looking at into focus, right? We adjust, we turn, whatever we need to do to focus in on that object we're looking at. My prayer tonight is that this study will accomplish just that. It will help us to refocus. That we will switch from what so many of us struggle with, which is a self-focus, to a God-focus. So there was a list I found on the internet. I don't know who came up with this list, but I thought it was pretty accurate. That's the top ten distractions that might keep us from focusing on God. Number one, money. Would we all agree? That's a huge distraction sometimes for us. Number two is the media, just things that's going on in the news, politics, certainly. Number three was church and religion. I'll just let you chew on that one. Uh, Number four was relationships. Number five was routine, being so caught up in our routine that we don't have time to focus on God. Our work, our hobbies, of course, our desires. Now, this one kind of set me back. Our pastor. Pastor is a distraction? Well, it can be. If you're focusing too much on the pastor and not enough on the Lord, then you're lifting man up higher than he should be, right? So pastors can be a distraction. I pray that I'm not that tonight, actually. Uh, And then the number 10, but I think it's number one, ourselves. We can be our own worst enemy in distracting, being distracted from God, right? So turn, if you will, tonight to two places in your Bible. I'll start off with Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Mark chapter 12. And we'll actually start off with Mark chapter 12. Now, at first glance, as we go through Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 28, it might not be entirely apparent why I'm parked on us focusing on God and getting our focus back in the right place, but... Uh, hopefully you'll see it as we go through it. So Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength, 
This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that He answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question Him. So, Two commands. You see the two commands there? They're simple, right? Love God and love others. The only time self is even mentioned in this passage is love your neighbor as yourself. So as much as we love ourselves, we need to love our neighbor equally as much, if not more, right? So we're going to talk about that part of this passage more on Sunday. But given the passage of Scripture we're looking at tonight, I'm asking, love God, why? Why are we to love God? And love God, how? How are we to love God? Hopefully, this will give us a focus, first of all, of why we are to love God and also how we are to love God. So love God, why? Looking at verse 28 again in Mark chapter 12, it says, Then one of the scribes came. One of the scribes. In Mark chapter 12, we'll notice in the verses before this passage, there are a number of prominent Jewish religious and political groups that have come to, to question Jesus. In Mark 12, 13 through 17, uh, we see what the Herodians' focus is. The Herodians now are a Jewish, Jewish political party of King Herod's supporters. Uh, many times they tried to trap Jesus with questions, and they also plotted to kill him. They saw Jesus as one who was a threat to their political future. And they were afraid of Jesus causing political instability. In verses 18 through 27, we see the Sadducees' focus. They were a wealthy, upper-class Jewish priestly party. They rejected the authority of the Bible beyond the five books of Moses. They profited greatly from the business end in the temple. And they, along with the Pharisees, were the two major parties in the Jewish Supreme Court. And now here, in verses 28 through 34, we see the Pharisees' focus. They were a strict religious group of the Jews. They advocated obedience to the Jewish laws and traditions. They were very influential in the synagogues, and many of the scribes were also Pharisees. So the man asking this question was one of the scribes, and this scribe was also a Pharisee and a lawyer, and we know that from the account in Matthew 22 of this same passage. Scribes were professional interpreters of the law. They emphasized traditions, and they denied Jesus' authority to reinterpret the law. So we, here we have a lawyer coming to question Jesus on the law. It's a setup, isn't it? We can see that happening. And, of course, Jesus' answer is, is just uh, wonderful here. So this scribe came, and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, who? Well, the guys that were asking him the questions before, in this case, the Herodians and the Sadducees. So you know, if you flip back to verse 13 in this same chapter, <clears throat> some of the Pharisees and the Herodians came to him to catch him in his words. And they asked him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? What did Jesus do? He asked for a coin, and he said, whose image and whose inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar's. 
And Jesus gave his answer. Then render unto Caesar what's Caesar's and render unto God what's God's. There couldn't have been a better answer. They had nowhere to go with it. He shut them down. Whether by the prompting of his peers or by his own conviction, this scribe, this Pharisee, this lawyer, perceiving that Jesus had previously answered them well, asked his question. Which is the first commandment of all? What is the greatest commandment in the law? So he's asking of all the commandments, all of God's commandments, which is the number one priority, which is the most important? Well, you see, at this time, the Jews had 613 commandments from the Old Testament law. 365 of these were don't do or negative commandments, and 248 of them were positive or do commandments. 613 commandments. It's interesting, if you read in Psalm 15, verses 1 through 5, David reduces this number, it appears, to 11. And in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it appears as though it's reduced to 3. Now here in our text, in verses 30 and 31, Jesus reduces it to 2. Love God and love others. So which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answers this question by quoting what in Jewish tradition is called the Shema. So flip over, if you've got your finger there still, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. The great Shema of the Jewish faith. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's the beginning of, the first part of, the Shema in the Jewish faith. And Jesus then combines it with Leviticus 19.18 and He said, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus then says, There is no other commandment greater than these. Love God and love others. The Shema starts off with, Hear, O Israel. Shema in Hebrews means, Hear. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O my people. Listen up. Back to verse 4. Here's the first part of the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Combined with verses 6 through 9. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house, and on your gates. Simply put, God's giving them the command to love Him with everything they are, to focus upon Him every day throughout their whole day in everything they do. Sounds like a good thing to do, right? We could all agree with that. I believe that distractions that we talked about before could be minimized or even eliminated if we keep a healthy focus on God all day long. When we rise up through the whole day, when we lie down. They were to obey God in everything that He commanded them all day, every day. Starting with the first ten, the Ten Commandments given previously in Deuteronomy 5. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet. 
The first four of those are man's relationship to God. The next six are man's relationship to man. So most of these top ten, if you will, we don't necessarily have a problem keeping those, do we? Do we? (laughs) Because that bottom one, you shall not covet. Just on my way over here tonight, I'm waiting at the stop sign to turn left to come to the church. This brand new Camaro, red, white stripes. I could see myself in that, you know? I could look good in that. I was coveting, right? We have to be very careful. We do that on a regular basis and don't think a thing about it. But in God's law, it says, do not covet. Bearing false witness against your neighbor. Has anybody here ever lied? You just did. Everybody, raise your hands. (laughs) But anyway... We try to do the best we can with the top ten, but the, out of the other 603, there are also many there that I don't have a problem with. Deuteronomy 14, 19. Do not eat creeping things that fly. So I can't eat roaches, beetles, or crickets. I'm walking in victory on that one, okay? I don't eat the creepy crawling things. That makes me right with God, right? No. But there's 612 more. Quite honestly, we all know that we have a problem with a number of them, don't we? We all struggle with something or more than something on that list. We can't keep all of these. No one can. Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. So God gave the Hebrews the law. And with that law, there was an understanding in His own heart that no one could keep that law. So then why the law from God if He knew nobody could keep the law? I mean... It's kind of rude on his behalf, you know, if you will, to say, hey, you want to get into the kingdom on your own? Well, here's 613 laws. If you keep them all, you can get there on your own. But we know we can't. It's a really good question. It's, it's just a good question. And those of us that, are, that study God's Word, we know the answer to that. But again, like I said, we need to be reminded of these things. Let's take a look at this again. Turn with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed, capitalized seed, should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the Scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So then what was, is the logic or the rationale of the law? It's twofold, as this passage tells us. Because of transgressions, to point out what is wrong and what is unholy, and to be a tutor, to use the law to show us what you have to do to keep the law. That word tutor in the King James Version is translated schoolmaster. It's a teacher, someone teaching us these things. The law is teaching us to show us what we have to do to keep that law to be righteous through the law. But I can't, and you can't. 
we can't gain access to the kingdom through the law. There was, only, there was one and only one who could keep the law perfectly, Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus came, fulfilled all the law, to meet the righteous requirement of God, to be the sinless sacrifice for once and for all. Amen? Amen. Why did God do this? Why did He give His own Son as a sacrifice for the likes of us? Jeremiah 31.3 even tells us, God speaking, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. 1 John 3.1 Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. So back to our original text, back in Mark, chapter 12, verse 28. Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Why is that such an important statement? Well, the Hebrew word translated one is a kod. Did you like that? It sounded Hebrew, didn't it? I don't know if that's how you say it, but, you know, that's as close as I can... This refers to a compound unity. Akkad is used in Genesis 2.24 with regard to Adam and Eve as well as in Exodus 26 to describe the curtains and coverings of the tabernacle. Two, right? Akkad. The Hebrew word translated God is Elohim. It's also what's called a compound unity. El, E-L is singular. Elo is used for two. But Elohim refers to three or more. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, Elohim, is one compound unity. So if we listen very careful to the Shema, we see and we hear the Trinity. That's important. It's very important. That confirms New Testament scriptures like Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Revelation 1, 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So when 1 John 4, 8 says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love, we can rest in the fact that He never changes. So He has always loved us with His perfect love, agape love. Even when He was laying down the law in Deuteronomy 6, He was loving us with His perfect love. So, love God. Why? Why love God? Well, the one verse that should first come to mind is 1 John 4, 19. We love Him... Because He first loved us. But we are also commanded to love God by Jesus in this text. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now some of you may have noticed that in the Shema, mind is not there. We'll get to that on Sunday. See, it's, it's one of those teasers. It's a carrot. You've got to come back. I mean, and I can just see you. You're sitting on the yacht. I can't wait till Sunday. I just know. That's where you are. Can't wait. So, if God is the standard for what true love is, and His command is to love Him with all that we are heart, soul, mind, and strength then we need to take a closer look at what the love of God looks like in order for us to know how to love God better ourselves. And I think that that's something we can all improve on. So, let's look at God's love defined. Perfect love, agape love, is selfless, it's sacrificial. It's unconditional love. Selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. C.S. Lewis, the author, said, On the whole, God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for Him. 
the love chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'll read it for you. It's a description of God's love. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. We could very easily, if you've probably heard before, substitute the word love with God. God suffers long. God is kind. God does not... All those things are attributes of God, right? What if we tried to put our own name in there? It's a very sobering thought, isn't it? If you just look at that list and you think, Jim suffers long. I've already lost, you know, right, right, right out of the gate. But there's another definition of God's love in Galatians chapter 5. We can take a look at that. It's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All characteristics, all attributes of God. Of all the verses in the Bible that confirm the love that God has for us, probably one of the most well-known, most often quoted verses is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So given the definition of agape, this verse shows us the selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love that God has towards us. Now, I want to take a closer look at this verse and kind of break it apart. And this is going to sound a little strange, but I want to look at it backwards. Because what is the end result of what is being said? Based on this verse, if the goal is to have or to obtain everlasting life, then what are the steps to get there? What do we learn about God and His love in this offering of everlasting or eternal life? If you're a note taker, here are four things for your consideration that you can jot down. Number one, God's motivation. For God so loved the world. The definition of motivation is the reason or reasons one has for acting or behaving in a particular way. The general desire or willingness of someone to do something. God's motivation was because He loved us with His perfect agape love. He offers us everlasting life because He loves us. For God so loved the world. Now, who does He offer it to? The world. All. Everyone. I don't know what all is in the Greek, but it's probably all, okay? I think we can trust in that. God is the initiator of the love. We didn't love Him first, did we? He loved us first. God's the initiator. For God so loved the world. God's love cannot be earned or deserved. God's love can only be received. That's it. By giving us His law first and showing us we can't keep it, we see our need for a Savior, which God provides out of His love for us. Number two, God's propitiation. That He gave His only begotten Son. So we have God's motivation for God so loved the world. Now we have God's propitiation that He gave His only begotten Son. Definition of propitiation. An atoning sacrifice, a God-approved sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice. Propitiation. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We couldn't achieve God's righteous standard, His law, on our own, so because of His love, He provided an atoning perfect sacrifice for us. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. 
1 John 2, 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We got God's motivation, which was love. We got God's propitiation is that he gave his son as a sacrifice for us. Next, number three, is God's salvation. That whoever believes in him should not perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. Salvation, definition. Preservation or deliverance from destruction, difficulty, or evil. Deliverance from the power or penalty of sin, redemption. Believing in Him and what He has done for us. That whoever believes in Him should not perish. Believing in Him. Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Excuse me. Also in Romans chapter 10, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's a promise there, isn't it? The gospel message is really very, very simple. We were sinners because we couldn't keep God's law. We needed someone to save us from our sinful state. God sent the perfect sacrifice to die for our sin. We confess our sinful state and accept the Savior's sacrifice. And we are granted by this verse, what? Everlasting life. By God's love through Jesus Christ. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And John 3.17, we focus a lot on John 3.16. 3.17 gets missed sometimes. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. We can only have fellowship with God by the necessity of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Love God. Why? One of my favorite authors is a pastor uh, by the name of John Piper. And in his book, God is the Gospel, uh, John writes, a critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? So how many of us would read those words and hear those words going, yeah, that's a description of heaven. That's what I like to hear. Those are all those things that I enjoy and look forward to. If you are as deeply in love with God as you should be, as we should be, we know we could never be satisfied in heaven without Christ. The fact is, without Christ, it it just wouldn't even be heaven. So, I challenge all of us tonight, will the first thought we have when we enter into heaven Where's Jesus? I want to see Jesus. Number four, God's justification. God's motivation, God's propitiation, God's salvation, and God's justification. All four of these wrapped up in this one verse that we're all so familiar with. Justification, definition, the act, process, or state of being justified. 
Again, I love Webster's, right? It's like, really? You can't come up with a definition that doesn't actually use the word? But it's correct. It's right on. The act, process, or state of being justified, in this case, by God. You've probably heard before justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. 1 John 3, 11 through 13 says, And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, important right here, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know. 1 John 2.25 says, And this is the promise that He has promised us eternal life. Not only is this love offered freely, but to those who believe it is everlasting love. Romans 8.35, Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's an everlasting love, everlasting life. Now, number five, God's love is unconditional. There is a lot of bad teaching out there that says otherwise. That God's love is conditional. It's based on something we do. Well, everything we've looked at here refutes that, does it not? Who was the initiator of the love? God. Who loved first? God. God is the one that did it. God is the one that laid down the law to show us we couldn't keep it so that we'd have need of a Savior that He could send His Son to die on the cross for us, each and every one of us. So God started out loving us. Unconditional love means there is no condition, stipulation, or requirement that we must meet in order for God to love us. Also in this verse, key point, God's love is not based on whoever believes. Everlasting life is based on whoever believes. God's love is already there. Whether we believe it or not, it's there. It's unconditional. So, love God, why? Well, I hope by now that's pretty obvious. Again, a lot of what we've talked about is elementary to the Christian faith. It's good for us to be reminded of these things. Because of God's amazing love for us, we should be what? Focused on God. As we looked in Deuteronomy, that was a picture of a person or a family unit focused on God from the beginning of their day, all through their day, to the end of their day. Can we be focused on God the way that we should be and be selfish? Not really. (laughs) No. If we are, we're not focused on God, we're focused on ourselves, right? So focus on God is a very healthy thing for us in our Christian walk. It's essential in our Christian walk. How many of you ever woke up in the morning, went to work, and had a bad day? (laughs) Nobody? (laughs) Greg has. (laughs) Tell it, Brother Greg. I I know. (laughs) We've all had bad days. Even when we've gotten up early in the morning and spent time with the Lord, we can still have a bad day, but we can take God with us through that bad day, right? Same thing if we have a good day. Take Him with us through that good day. Either way, we should be praising God for that day. But imagine, if you will, if you look back at Deuteronomy chapter chapter 6, it talks about when you rise up. 
Brian and I, we were doing our discipleship one day, and we come up with this thing that I thought was just great. I think Brian actually did, but I'm going to take credit too, because I was there. It was just the two of us, and there's nobody else to refute it, okay, except Brian. But getting up in the morning and having a briefing, if you will, with God, going throughout our whole day knowing that God has set the pace for what our day is going to be, and then at the end of our day, looking back, doing a debriefing, right? Having a briefing in the morning and a debriefing in the evening. And that debriefing, just celebrating everything that God did through our day. When we were focused on Him and when we were not focused on Him. Because it's going to happen, isn't it? But yet we can look back and go, you know what? I struggled a little bit there. I had a tough time right there in that one thing. If I had turned to God, I think it would have gone differently. Not that the problem still wouldn't have been there, but the problem solver would have been there with us. So, focus on God. Don't be distracted because of God's amazing love for us. Amen? Turn, if you will, to the book of Mark, chapter 12. Mark, chapter 12, verse 28 starting with verse 28. And we read, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Now if you were here on Wednesday night, we had part one of that. And we were looking at love God, why? Because we see the two commands here very clearly. It's love God and love others. So Wednesday night we were uh, focusing upon looking at Love God, Why? If you want to get a copy of that, there are CDs out at the information booth. Uh, But we are to love God. To build on that a little further, even from Wednesday night, we are to love God because of who He is and because of what He's done. Because of who He is. Because of what we may know about Him. Uh, We may know what others know or say about Him. Uh, What does His Word say about who He is? But what does He say about Himself in His Word? An interesting study, if you ever have the opportunity to do it, is do a study on the names of God throughout the Bible. Uh, There's one particular study by Precept Ministries, Lord, I Want to Know You. And it's it's just a great study because it gives us insight into the character of God by the names of God. So in His Word, He calls Himself El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty, El Elyon, the Most High God, Adonai, Lord, Master, Yahweh, Lord Jehovah. 
Jehovah Nisi, the Lord my banner. Jehovah Ra, the Lord my shepherd. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Mekadishkam, the Lord who sanctifies you. El Olam, the everlasting God. Elohim, God. Kuna, jealous. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. And Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. So we are to love God because of who He is and because of what He's done. Last Wednesday we looked at John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. There's four things that we noticed in that verse. There was God's motivation was love. Love for us. Love for the world. God's propitiation for us was a perfect sacrifice, His Son. God's salvation for us was and made available to us through His Son. And His justification was in His belief in His Son for forgiveness. It leads to just as if I'd never sinned and results in everlasting life. We see that just in that one small verse that we're all familiar with. But we also see from our text that we're commanded to love God We saw that on Wednesday night as we went through the Scriptures, but we also see that this morning as we go through. So this morning we're going to look at love God how. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning. We thank You for the awesome opportunity that we have, Lord, to just take this time to gather together in fellowship and study from Your Word. Lord, looking to get Your truth from it and apply that truth to our lives. Lord, we, we do want to know how to love you more. And so, Father, I pray this morning through what we're going to be looking at that you would reveal that to us even more than we've known before. So, Father, bless our time of study this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see in Mark chapter 12, verse 29, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord, is, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So it's pretty straightforward what we see there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. But what does that mean exactly? How do we do do that? Well, one thing's for sure. One thing that we can trust in is that if God has commanded it in His Word, And we can trust that His Word is also going to explain it, right? We know, you've heard Pastor Jeff say many times, God's commandments are God's enablements. If God's going to command us to do something, He's also going to enable us to do that. He's also going to show us how to do that as well. But quickly this morning, I want to look at the the Hebrew and the Greek definition of of a couple words to give us a better understanding. In Deuteronomy 6.5, which is what Jesus is quoting in this passage, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then in Mark 12.30, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Notice the difference there? In Deuteronomy, he doesn't say mind, but in Jesus quoting that verse, he does say mind. So, why do you think he did that? 
I have no idea. <laughs> I'd like to give you more. I have no idea. I, well, I kind of do, okay? So stay with me. We'll take a look at this, and I think it'll explain it a little better. <laughs> but I was pondering that this week. Why did... I, I, I don't know. So here's something to think about. Let's think about the first two, heart and soul. Let's look at those first. Now, I'm not to go all biblical scholar on you and everything, because... Uh, I'm just not capable of that, you know, I'll, I'll shut down before I get to that point. But uh, from what I understand from the Hebrew and Greek, heart and soul actually refers to two specific aspects of us as humans. The intangible, which is vague and ab- abstract, and the tangible, which is clear and definite. Uh, it's, it's real. So essentially, the words translated as heart and soul in modern comparison, are like the computer terms software and hardware only for people. In the words words of uh, Charles Stanley, stay with me, stay with me now. (laughs) Software and hardware, soul and heart. Heart in English is somewhat inaccurate as a translation because it refers only to emotion, while in the original language it also includes intellect. So in our English translation, we see heart as, as emotion, the, heart, the seat of the emotions. And in the original language, it includes intellect as well. And soul, in our English translation, is even worse because it's, it suggests intangible qualities, but the original language uh, specifically referred to tangible things like flesh, uh, blood, and breath. Now, while we don't have convenient words in English to express this software and hardware aspects that we have as people, we are fortunate that we have a pair of words that that do. Uh, The English pair, like the Hebrew, the Hebrew levav for heart and nefesh for soul, or the Greek kardia for heart and suke for soul, refers to the combination of these two concepts. That pair is mind and body. Okay, at first hearing of that, we kind of immediately think, oh, he's going to go new age on us or something here, the whole mind and body thing. No, that's not the case. It truly does, from a definition standpoint, those two words capture it better in our language. Okay, follow me on that. Normally the word mind in English indicates intellect to the exclusion of emotion. And normally body tends to focus on flesh rather than blood or breath, but Taken together, they, they uh, assume a broader meaning in our English language. So we see these broader meanings, for example, in the mind-body connection, which refers to the fact that both how we feel and what we think are connected to physical matters. For instance, it's becoming clear that, let's say, losing a loved one can increase the risk of heart attack. That's a mind-body connection. And taking deep breaths can help mitigate agony. That's also a mind-body connection and so forth. You see the connection there. So we could translate the first two parts of Deuteronomy 6.5 and Mark 12.30 as love the Lord your God with all your mind and body based on the original languages and our English translation of that. But there's a caution with that. And I, I have this in my notes to caution myself because in Revelation 22 verse 18 it says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. 
I don't want that. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. I don't want that either. So, having explained that the way that I have, I certainly don't want to misrepresent God in any way at any time. But here's the thing, gang. It appears that in the English translation, in order to not miss the meaning of either the Hebrew or the Greek, everything was included. Everything that makes us, us. All of it. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Which covers everything, doesn't it? Which means we love God with everything that we are. All that we are. All that makes us, us. However, there is something to be said for the way that we use and express heart. I love you with all my heart. You have broken my heart. Total eclipse of the heart. No, not that one. Just, just forget that one. Let's set that aside. Had an 80s flashback there. Sorry. But practically, we attach heart and love together, don't we? We connect it with the close relationships that we have in our lives. Imagine being married. Actually, I don't have to imagine being married. I'm actually married. But imagine being married. If you or I never talked with our spouse, or not very often, well, that wouldn't be a very healthy relationship, would it? If we had no communication or little communication, it would certainly cause a breakdown in the relationship. However, if we have love for our spouse, it should inspire us to talk with them, spend time with them, enjoy being with them, not because we have to, but because we get to, right? So as a child of God, if we never talked with God or not very often, wouldn't be a very healthy relationship, would it? No communication or little communication would certainly cause a breakdown in the relationship. However, love for God should inspire us in the same way to talk with Him, spend time with Him, enjoy being with Him, not because we have to, but because we get to. Our spouses mean a lot to us, and they've done a lot for us, but they are not God. Wives, look at your husband real quick. Just glance over and look at him. Do you see him as God? I hope not. (laughs) He falls way short of that. So they don't compare, but still we must invest in that relationship for it to grow and for, to make it last. And we have to with God as well. In fact, key point here, no other love can be allowed to rival our love for God. No other love can be allowed to rival our love for God. In fact, our love for God will improve our love for our spouses, for everyone else. So, how do we express our love for God practically? Well, I think it can be measured in a couple of ways. How much time do we spend with God? And how much time do we spend for God? Let me repeat that. How much time do we spend with God? And how much time do we spend for God? Remember the two commandments in our text? I'm going to ask you this many times throughout this teaching. Remember what they are? Love God, love others. Let's say that together. Love God, love others. Because there will be a quiz later. The quality of the time we spend for God is in direct proportion to the time we spend with God. 
Once again, the quality of the time we spend for God is in direct proportion to the time we spend with God. If we truly love God, we will prioritize our time with and for God. In Jeremiah 30.21, God is asking this, For who is he who will devote himself to be close to me? And in Psalms 5.3, David writes, In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait in expectation. I love that. I come before God and I wait in expectation of what God has for me each morning. Psalm 42, verse 1, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants after you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go meet with God? So there was the expectation of wanting to meet with God, and then there's also the expectation of what God has for us as well. Jesus, in Matthew 14, 23, went up on a mountainside by Himself to pray. We're fortunate. Colorado, we have mountainsides. You know, there's some places in the country, like Florida, an overpass. That's all you got. That's the biggest hill there is an overpass. Luke 5, 16, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. The lonely speaks of secluded, a place where we can go without distraction to spend time with our God. And in John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So that time that we spend with God increases what we can do for God and we can bear fruit. So you want to bear fruit? Spend time with the fruit producer, God, right? Let's this morning take an honest evaluation of ourselves. Let's just sit back and look at ourselves for a moment. Do an assessment, a self-assessment of ourselves. Measuring ourselves with an accurate tape. You know, you don't want a a tape that skips two inches. There's no two inch between one and three inch. You want a tape that will actually accurately measure something. Romans 12.3 says, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, that would be all of us, right? Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. That's one of those verses that, you know, you just don't like hearing. That's kind of hard, you know. I mean, really, uh, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Is there any time in your life that you've actually done that? I can think of, you guys recognize this position, I'm sure. He just cut me off. Oh, so... I should get to be in front of him, right? What's he doing passing me? I should get to be, or she. It could be a he or she. My experience is more times he. (laughs) But don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt each one a measure of faith. So as we come before God, we're spending that quality time with God. We need to recognize who we're before there, right? And we need to come to the Lord in humility and come to the Lord soberly, recognizing who He is. There's a, there's a pattern uh, for spending time with God or spending time in prayer uh, that's very helpful. 
I, I came across it years ago, and I still think it's just a, a really good principle to put uh, in place in our time that we spend with God. It's, it's what they call an acrostic, where you take a word, and you take each letter of that word, and you make a phrase from those letters. So in this case, if you're a note taker, you might want to jot this down. It's the word acts, like the book of Acts, A-C-T-S, acts. A stands for adoration. That's where we're reflecting on God Himself, His love, His power, His majesty, His provision, and His gift of Christ to us. A, adoration. C is confession. Admitting your sins to God with honesty and humility, knowing He loves you. A, adoration. C, confession. T is thanksgiving. Telling God how grateful you are for everything that He has given and and still gives. So A, adoration, C, confession, T, thanksgiving, and S, supplication. Making specific requests both for others and for yourself. So you look in those four things, it encompasses really everything that we need to be focused upon when we come before the Lord, right? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. But also the order, I believe, is correct. We know that when Jesus died on the cross and the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom, that God declared open house, that we can come to Him at any time, right? We don't have to go through a mediator other than Jesus Christ Himself. But it's still, if you think about it, there seems to be a way to approach God. Not flippantly, but recognizing God for who He is right from the start. Whether it's in prayer, whether it's in devotion, whether it's in Bible study, we come to God and recognize Him for who He is. Adoration, right? The Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Jesus gave us a good example through that. Then confession. We've recognized God for who He is, but now it's time to do what? Recognize us for who we are as well. Sinners saved by His grace. So, having that time of confession. And then thanksgiving. Right after that, it just makes sense. We've just recognized the fact that He's God, we're not, and He's forgiven us. So we've got much to be thankful for. As well as all the other blessings in our lives, right? And then supplication. Where we make our requests known to God. What do we typically start off with? <laughs> Lord, I want, I want, I need, I need, I want, I want, I need, I need. You know, we kind of rush right into that. When, does that work for God? God can sort all that out. It's not like God goes, wait, 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 wait a minute, you got to get this back in order. You're all confused here. God doesn't do that. He can sort all that out. However, in our response of love to God, we should recognize Him for who He is right, right off the bat. So just remember, God loves you and is always with you. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, God says this, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you what? A future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Spending quality time with God is expressing our love for Him. Practical way to show our love for God, spend time with Him. Now back to our text. Mark chapter 12, verse 30 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second like it is this. 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we're to love God more than ourselves, and we are to love others as ourselves. You get that? Love God more than ourselves and love others as ourselves. How much do you love yourself? I can't answer that for you. I'm just asking the question. How much do you love yourself? Think about that. How is it possible to do that? Only by the supernatural work of God in our lives, by His Holy Spirit working in us towards God and out of us towards others. It's got to be something supernatural that we don't necessarily understand it. It's God doing His work in us and through us. But self-love... Self-love is self-preserving, self-enhancing, self-exalting, self-esteeming, self-advancing, something that we do real well on our own, don't we? Romans 13 verse 8 says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. So two times in this verse alone, Paul says that the command to love our neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. And this is what Jesus meant when He said, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law of the prophets, which we all know as the golden rule, even though it gets misused on a regular basis. So, since we've already got a preconceived notion of how we want others to treat us, then we should treat others in the same manner that we want to be treated, right? Our love for God comes to and manifests itself when we love others. Or, we could say that God's love is fulfilled when we love others. Because that's what God's wanting us to do anyway, right? In John it says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says, Love your neighbor as yourself. And with that commandment He kind of cuts to the root of our sinfulness which is self-love. What causes us to sin more than anything else? Thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought, right? Putting ourselves first. That's called self-love. We have a powerful instinct of self-preservation and self-fulfillment. We all want to be happy. We all want to live and to live with satisfaction. We want food for ourselves. We want clothes for ourselves. We want a place to live for ourselves. We want protection from violence against ourselves. We want meaningful or pleasant activity to fill our days. We want friends to like us and spend time with us. We want our life to count in some way. You know that phrase, uh, the love of your life? You know, someday you'll meet the love of your life. You want to? Go look in a mirror. Because <laughs> for most of us, that's where it's found, right? There's the love of your life. <laughs> Looking good, right? (laughs) Well, all of this is self-love. Self-love is the deep longing to diminish pain and to increase happiness. 
That's what Jesus starts with when he says, as yourself. So as you love yourself, so love your neighbor. Which means, as you long for food when you're hungry, so long to feed your neighbor when he's hungry. As you long for nice clothes for yourself, so long for nice clothes for your neighbor. As you work for a comfortable place to live, so desire a comfortable place to live for your neighbor. And on and on and on and on. As you would that men would do to you, do so to them. In other words, key point, make your self-seeking the measure of your self-giving. Make your self-seeking the measure of your self-giving. Measure your pursuit of the happiness of others and what it should be by the pursuit of happiness for yourself. How do you pursue your own well-being? Pursue your neighbor's well-being that way too. So in all these ways, neighbor love does not threaten self-love because self-love should become God-love and God-love is not threatened, diminished, or exhausted when it's poured out into the lives of others. God's desire is for us to take everything that we have found in Him and freely give it to everyone else. God loved and invested in us, so we are to love and invest in others. Look around the room. Is there anyone in here that... As a brother and sister in Christ, I love them. But would you say I don't like them? See, I don't, I don't think that that works. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know that there are those people who say, well, I love them. Because God said I had to. But I don't like them very much. Well, that, that statement in itself isn't very loving, is it? Do we have people we don't like? Yeah. And that honest assessment of ourselves, yeah, we do. Doesn't make it right, does it? What's the two commandments in our text? Love God, love others. Very good. You guys' memorization skills are amazing. (laughs) So a century or so ago, a guy by the name of General, General William Booth, you may have heard of, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, he wished to send a telegram of encouragement to his missionaries around the world. But he found that he could only afford to send one word to each. Based on the money that he had, all the missionaries he had, he could only send one word to each. What's the word that he chose? Others. Others. You're like, Pastor Jim, did you make those up special for this teaching? No. I ordered them special (laughs) for this teaching, actually. And they are available out at the information booth after the service. They're free to anyone that wants them, anyone who dares to place it on their car. We have our 89.7 Grace FM stickers we stick on our cars, don't we? Our little fish and all of that. Do you ever think about what somebody thinks when we cut them off in traffic? And that's on the back. Still want another sticker on the back of your car? (laughs) You should. You should. So sure, loving others means God's provision to help meet their physical need. But what's the most important thing? God's provision to help their spiritual need. We have opportunity to meet their spiritual need by meeting their physical needs. It's an open door, if you will. It's a possibility that we have that. As God stirs our hearts to meet them where they are and help them out, 
we have that opportunity then to impact their lives for Christ as well. And we can do this by two things. Encouraging others to Christ and encouraging others in Christ. Encouraging others to Christ. If they don't have a relationship with Christ, introduce them. If they do have a relationship with Christ, support them and encourage them in that relationship. Really, it's two simple things for us to do, isn't it? Always be in a place where we're available to God to encourage someone to the Lord or encourage someone in the Lord if they're our brother and sister in Christ. So being available to God for Him to use us to invest in others. That's the ultimate expression of our love for God and others. Love God how? Well, to finish up, turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We'll start with verse 30. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's it's just a well-known parable, a well-known story by all of us. I think Christian and non-Christian alike are familiar with this story. And this is following Luke's account of the dialogue between Jesus and the scribe lawyer that we looked at Wednesday night. So it's, it's the same passage, just Luke's account of that. But it's the same thing we've been looking at in Mark 12. But in Luke's account, the scribe asks another question. He says in Luke 10.29, if you just look up at it real quick, But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Who's your neighbor? Turn to the left, turn to the right. There's your neighbor. (laughs) Wherever you go. (laughs) As you're driving down the road, you glance over. Hi, neighbor. (laughs) Sorry, just had a Mr. Rogers moment there. Where's your neighbor? Wherever you are, the people that you're around, those are your neighbor. So he's wanting to justify himself, and we do this as well, don't we? But Jesus gives to him this example, this parable. Let's read through this just quickly. Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. So in this passage, we see several different attitudes displayed. It's hard for me to even imagine seeing someone in a ditch, beat up, half dead, and as we see in this account with the priest and Levite, they walk over, 
turn their backs on Him and walk away. Really, that's hard for us even to imagine. Christian or non-Christian, that's hard to imagine that someone would do that. Nevertheless, that's our story. So, to the lawyer, the wounded man was a subject to discuss. Not coming down on lawyers, but hey. (laughs) To the thieves, the wounded man was someone to use and exploit. What's yours is mine and I'm going to take it. To the religious men, the priest and the Levite, the wounded man was a problem to be avoided. What's mine is mine and I'm going to keep it. To the innkeeper, the wounded man was a customer to serve for a fee. What's mine is for rent, (laughs) for a fee. To the Samaritan, the wounded man was a neighbor worth being cared for and loved. What's mine is yours, and I'm going to share it. So what did the Samaritan do for him? As we look at those verses, we see he had compassion on him, first and foremost. He saw his need. He bandaged his wounds. He cared for his need. He put him on his own animal, which, by the way, means that he's walking, right? So he was inconvenienced for his need. And then he invested his own money in him. He sacrificed his personal funds for his need. He saw his need. He cared for his need. He was inconvenienced by his need. And it cost him something as well. Years ago, I've shared this with you once before, but it's been a number of years ago. When I was working um, for Hewlett Packard, I went to work early in the morning. And so early one morning, get in the car, start up, get ready to head off to work and realize... Uh, I'm out of gas. So go over here to the corner gas station, pull up, get out, starts pumping gas. And I noticed there's somebody in, at the pumps next to me. And it was a young lady, and she was just kind of standing there. And as I was pumping gas, she walked over to me and said, uh, excuse me, I don't mean to bother you, but I was, I was just wondering if you could help me. Okay, you know what you need. It's, it's early, okay, so still a little foggy. Uh, what, what, what do you need? And she said, well, I'm on my way to work, and I'm out of gas, and I don't have any money. And she said, uh, I would be willing to sell you my wedding ring just to, just to buy gas. Well, like we are, a couple thoughts were going off in my brain. One, the first thought was, I'm about to get ripped off. I'm going to be taken in by this. The other thought was, it's, it's gas, you know, help her. She asked for help. Flesh and spirit fighting there, obviously. So I said, look, I, I don't want your wedding ring because obviously it would have been a little weird for Chris, me coming home with somebody else's wedding ring. <laughs> Hard to explain, you know, just would be. So anyway, I said, no, you keep your wedding ring and I'll, I'll put gas in your car. And what was I thinking? Well, we'll see. I don't know where she's working, but probably $10, $20, that'll do it. Once again, I was convicted. And God, fill her car up with gas, you know. That's what I heard. I don't, <laughs> nobody else was there, but that's what I heard. So I filled her car up with gas. She said, thank you. Okay. And on my way to work, I'm thinking... 
I hope it was what it appeared to be, but I got a feeling that, you know, I just got taken for a tank of gas. And oh, well, whatever, whatever. I'll just move on. Well, at that time, uh, Pastor Darrell, who was here at that time, we used to go out to the to county jail and lead Bible studies on Sunday night. So came around to Sunday night, and um, as I'm walking into the jail, she's walking out, sees me, recognizes me, and said, oh, I just want to thank you so much again for that act of kindness, you know, that, that you, you know, when I was having a tough time there, you were there and, and helped me out with that. And she said, because my husband's in jail here. That's who I'm here visiting. And, <laughs> oh boy, God, you're working me over here, aren't you? <laughs> you know, not that I had forgotten about it by any means, but it was like, wow, this is, this is something else. So, God's not done. Go into the pod, leading the Bible study, and I share that story. I just thought, you know, maybe this will be an encouragement to these guys and how we can love one another and whatever. So I share the story. And a guy to my right starts crying. Who is it? This woman's husband. And he said, thank you so much for providing, you know, for my wife. He said, I've made some dumb choices, some dumb mistakes. And just to know that there's people out there watching out for her blesses me, you know. Thinking back to my original attitude with the whole thing, it's like, oh, man. God will place opportunities for us to express His love in our lives when, the last, you know, when we're not even looking for it. It's there. How we're going to react to that is probably going to be largely dependent upon how much time we spend with God. Remember what we were talking about earlier. How much we're going to invest in the life of someone else is going to be measured many times by how much time we spent with God. So let me ask you this morning as we close, will you commit from this point forward to discipline yourselves to draw closer to God? Not that you don't draw close to God right now, but to draw closer even to God and to continue to grow in your love for Him so He can work in you to express His love through you to others. Through you. Expressing life. Have you guys heard the Dead Sea analogy before? To anybody that's been to Israel and seen the Dead Sea, it's very clear why it's dead. Water flows in, nothing flows out. We can become very dead spiritually because of the same thing. God pouring His love into us, and if we don't pour that love out into others, we become dead in some ways. We don't bring life to someone else. In 1 John 4, 11 and 12, it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. What's the two commandments? Love God. Love others.